I've entitled this morning's message, Two Baptisms. Now, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This morning I'd like to look at the scriptures as we make our way uh, through the Gospel of Luke that deal with um, the subject of the Holy Spirit. I've broken it up into about four categories. Number one, who is the Holy Spirit? Number two, what is his purpose? Number three, how does one receive him? And number four, is there a second experience with the Holy Spirit after regeneration? And what I mean by after regeneration is I mean a person who has received Christ as their savior. Does it all happen at one time or are these two completely separate events? As I begin, I grabbed... um, Uh, Pastor Chuck's book, Living Waters. And uh, the first one, who is the Holy Spirit? I'm just going to quote a couple paragraphs from Chuck. Is the Spirit a person is his question. There are certain things we need to know about the Holy Spirit in order to fully appreciate and understand him and his work. The first thing is that the Holy Spirit is indeed a person. And we need to recognize this if we are to have a personal relationship with him. If you think of the Holy Spirit as only an essence, or only a force, or a power, you will find it impossible to have a personal relationship with him. You cannot have a meaningful relationship with an essence or a force. Have you ever tried to get personal with an electric socket? Some of you have, some of you had not. (laughs) How about a steam turbine or an automobile engine? Of course you haven't. The thought is absurd. And it's equally absurd to think of the Holy Spirit as an essence or a force or an impersonal power that permeates the universe and yet hope to call upon him in your time of need. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. He is the third part of the Godhead, the Trinity. Um, All of being God. And some think, well, Jesus said that the Father was greater. Uh, Well, according to Isaiah, one of the names that is given to Jesus is the Almighty God the everlasting father. And for me to begin to even try to describe or capture, put into any terms, um, one God in three persons is simply farther than anybody, any one of us can wrap our head around. Good place for an amen. The Lord says, my ways are past finding out. And when it comes to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, He is not only he in the capital, not only is he a person, he is God. Just as much as Jesus is God, 
just as much as the Father is God. The scriptures, I think, are very, very clear on this. No, the Holy Spirit is a person who has been sent by the Father at the request of Jesus to come alongside you, to help you. Jesus said, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper, the Spirit of truth. Now, we're warned against attack on um, sound doctrine in the last days. And um, one more paragraph that Chuck has here. It says, the attack on the Holy Spirit. Many cults attack the personality of the Spirit just as they attack the deity of, of Jesus. The Jehovah Witnesses are one such cultic group. The leaders of the Watchtower teach that the Holy Spirit is not a person at all, but merely an essence or an influence. These men say the Holy Spirit is not really a he, capital H, but rather an it. According to them, we shouldn't speak of the Holy Spirit, but a Holy Spirit, an influence or power emanating from God, no more personal than a breeze flowing through a fan. So a couple paragraphs by Chuck um, trying to make it clear when we discuss or talk about uh, the Holy Spirit that he's part of the Trinity. Uh, we see a picture of it in Genesis 1. most obvious one is the baptism, I suppose. We have the Father speaking from heaven. We see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and landing upon Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the Lord told John, now John, when you see the Holy Spirit land on Jesus, that's how you'll know. That's how you'll know that he is the Messiah. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? Let's turn as we start this morning to uh, the Gospel of John chapter 14. John 14. I'll go back and forth here a little bit between the New King James and the King James. John 14, picking it up in verse 14 through 18. Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. And if you love me, then keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Now, helper is in the New King James. Um, comforter, I believe, if you have a King James, is a word that they use there. Um, I believe the better translation is helper, and I will explain that in more detail towards the end of our study. He will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you. Now this is important that you catch this line. He dwells with you, and he will be in you. Now, this is John's gospel, and he's writing about an event where the Holy Spirit um, had not yet been given to them. Here, uh, what we have is uh, Jesus said the Holy Spirit was dwelling with his men or alongside of them. Now, the Greek preposition here is para. 
yet soon the Spirit would be more than with the disciples. Soon he would dwell in them. Here is a preposition, en. So there's two different prepositions here, para and en, en. I believe the disciples went from para to en in John 20. They were believers. But remember when the Lord appeared in John 20 to the disciples, it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now there's no way I can't believe that that didn't happen. So the Holy Spirit was with them, but not yet in them. Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The same two prepositions characterize your own experience prior, notice, prior to your conversion. It was the Holy Spirit who convicted you of your sins. We'll be in John 16 in just a bit explaining that. It was the Holy Spirit who received, um, revealed to you Jesus Christ as the one who could take away your sin, who convinced you to accept Jesus as your Lord, and the moment you accepted Jesus as the Lord of your life, the Holy Spirit came in you and began to indwell you. You went from para, with, to en, en, in. At this point, I'm gonna have you turn to Acts chapter one. Acts Acts chapter 1, verse 8 tells us, and let's just read it and I'll come back and comment on the Greek words here. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. Now, Not every believer, however, has the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus said to him, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is the third Greek preposition, epi. So we have para, and and now another Greek word, uh, epi. The Spirit comes upon you and over you, and uh, I like to sort of think of it where the Lord says someday concerning the Holy Spirit will be like rivers of living water that will gush forth. When he said, those who are thirsty come unto me, and I'll give you living waters, and they will gush forth from you. And it goes on to say after that, but he was referring to the Holy Spirit who would be sent. So, um, it has the idea of overflowing. The epi, that's a Greek word, epi, empowers the believer for service. It is an overflowing of the spirit, a flowing forth from my life. Uh, the dunamis, let's go back to the word here, uh, where it says you'll receive power. Well, the Greek word there is dunamos, and it's where we get the word dynamite from. So it's an empowering. Matter of fact, the Lord said, I don't want you guys to do anything. I want you to tarry in Jerusalem until, until the Holy Spirit is given to you. One day Peter was um, uh, 
tried to figure out how they were going to get 12 with Judas gone. And so he said, well, let's draw some lots and we'll, we'll pick somebody. I don't think the Holy Spirit was leading them. The two guys that were chosen, neither one of them are mentioned again. Um, I believe Paul was the Lord's choice for the 12th disciple. So here you have one day, Peter being Peter. <laughs> I got this thing figured out. Don't worry about it, guys. We'll just cast some lots here. No. But when the Holy Spirit did come and came upon them in Acts 2, it was not only seen, but it was also heard. Only time in the scriptures you have both of that happening. Seeing, tongues of fire, and hearing like a muddy, rushing wind. They thought they were drunk. No, Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to quote Old Testament scriptures and began to give uh, insight. One of the things the Holy Spirit does is bring things back to remembrance. You might be witnessing to somebody and you go, oh my goodness, I'm not really doing this, am I? Somebody else is involved with this and all of a sudden you got these scriptures coming from out of nowhere and it's the right word at the right time. This is, Chuck used to like the terminology, God working supernaturally, naturally. And um, I believe in a lot of the works of the Holy Spirit, that's how it is manifested. The empowering the believer for service is an outflowing of the Spirit, this dunamos. It is one thing, and this is important, it's one thing to have the Holy Spirit with you, para. But it's another thing to have the Spirit in you, but something even more to have the Holy Spirit upon you. So if you're doing a word study on that, you need all three of these Greek prepositions, para, apai, and in. And I'll leave that for extra credit for those of you who want to follow that down. Um, Let's turn uh, to the next question. What... What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Let's go to John uh, chapter 15 at this time. John 15. We'll look at the last two verses of John 15. Now when the comforter or helper, and again this is going to come into play um, towards the end of our study, When he comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he's going to testify of me. Now, look at chapter 16, and let's pick it up in verse 07. And um, we have some of the, the, uh, the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 says of chapter 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now he said he had to leave, but he says, look, um, it's expedient that I go. It's necessary that I go. Because if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. Now Jesus was personally involved in 12 men lives. And... um, Yet, one of the attributes of God is the omnipresence. That means God is everywhere in the universe. David said, where can, I, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there. 
If I take the wings of the ocean and go to the farthest sea, even there, your hand is going to guide me. So God's presence, we call it omnipresence, is everywhere. But he says, unless I go, I won't be able to send that third part of the Trinity down to have this interaction, personal empowering, of every person that ever comes to Jesus Christ. Now having said that, I'm gonna say something a little controversial because there's different teachings on it. And that is one, that this all happens at one time when you accept Jesus into your life. The reason I've called this two baptisms this morning is I believe the scripture teaches something quite different. That you can be saved and um, when you're saved the spirit of God dwells in you. But is he overflowing? Is he empowering? I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage I go, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The work of the Spirit is an ongoing process in a person's life. We have this saying, there can be no conversion without conviction. Who brings the conviction? I believe the Holy Spirit. That's what it says right here. What's the first thing he does? He convicts you that you're a sinner. How many times have you heard it said, are you going to heaven? Yeah. Well, why? Well, I'm better than that guy. (laughs) I'm not as bad as that guy. And uh, it's sort of this God sort of judging on a curve type mentality. No, no. My Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Oh, wretched man that I am. So that levels the playing field. Not, we don't have judging on a curve. No, we're all in the same boat. And that is we're all sinners. And uh, the wages of sin is death. So the Bible's clear on the purpose that when the Holy Spirit comes, there's this conviction We first see it being played out, Peter one day casting lots to see who would be number 12, to giving such a powerful message that when he got to the part, he says, look, Israel, you crucified your Messiah. And when he said that, it says they were cut to the heart. And all I could say is, we did. Now what do we do? He says, every one of you, repent. And so the very first message that was ever preached by Peter was a message of repentance and instruction. Repent and be baptized. And not bad for his first time out, 3,000 people get saved. Pretty good, Pete. (laughs) And so we find that the first work here is the work of conviction. And then it says, because they do not believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I have still many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when the spirit of truth has come, notice what he will do. He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of himself or his authority, But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, and he will uh, take of what is mine and declare it 
to you. So number one, he will convict of sin. Um, As you look at verse 13, it tells us, it'll guide you into all truth. Through through the word, um, through the word from Genesis Revelation, is God's layout for mankind, and it's the truth. What has been is the facts of history. What is going to be can't be changed. The Lord said, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but not this book. It's true. And uh, so when the, whole, the Holy Spirit gives us discernment, um, we can smell a phony, um, we can tell if a person is born again. Um, I can hang out with a guy for five or ten minutes and tell you if he's born again. If he's talking Christianese, you can, there's still that discernment that the Holy Spirit gives you. Um, you believe in Jesus, but you're really not born again. I don't tell him that, but I got it figured out. But it's not me who's figuring it out. It's the Spirit of God in me bearing witness that this guy is saved or he's not saved. And we often say that. We, we talk about a friend. We say, well, well, is he saved? He says he's a Christian, but he's not saved. Have you ever said that? We all have. All right? To tell you things to come. And verse 13. Um, and number 14 is important, especially as we conclude our study this morning. He won't draw attention to himself. Now, this is a big one. He, he's here to glorify Jesus. How many characters are on Christian TV that are putting on a show and all they're doing, they're talking about the Holy Spirit moving. And it's a three-ring circus. And um, uh, when Judy and I are in Colorado, I looked up at old buddy in Aspen. And when he found out, he couldn't believe it, I was not only a Christian, but a pastor on top of it. He knew me 50 years ago as a ski buddy from Oshkosh. And he says, well, Dwight, I'm not, in, I'm not into that kind of stuff. Uh, religion. I said, I said, Jimmy, I hate religion. I agree with Stalin. Religion is the opiate of the people. But I love Jesus. And if you look at Jesus and his life and who he is, that's something very completely different. Every one of us has a void. And um, I pray for the, my old friend and... Um, I pray that the Lord opens his eyes to the difference. And he says, you know, you and Judy seem normal. <laughs> That's what he said. Jimmy, I hope you're watching this morning. You said you were going to. <laughs> he says, you know what, Dwight, I'm going to check you out. I said, check us out. It's easy, easy to find. And he says, yeah, I like that. You guys seem normal. So I got sidetracked on talking. Let's, this is what we're up against, Jim. All these guys you watch on TV that are throwing their coats around or kicking little old ladies in Jesus' name, it's all for show and it's all for money. And he's sharp enough and wise enough to know um, a fake when there's one there. Um, he's also the best ski, skier at Aspen. Uh, during his time, and he's very, very well known. I won't embarrass him by telling his name. He did hang out with John Denver a lot, (laughs) who I had a real burden for because John was a tree hugger and uh, very much an environmentalist. Had a good heart, good man all the way around, but I don't believe he was born again. 
And that's sad to me. He told the story that um, John was in his house one day and his wife came in and he was playing a song. Boy, am I getting sidetracked or what? <laughs> Too good of a story not to pass up. And he's playing a song and then John gets up and leaves and his wife goes, who was that? <laughs> she didn't know John Denver when she saw him. I thought that was funny. Anyway. <laughs> Back to the study. So the purpose is not to draw attention to himself. And what we see in my struggle, what I was trying to explain to my friend Jim is, look, I watch Christian TV, and it's so hard for me to watch it because it, the average person that watches this stuff said, why would I want anything to do with that? All they want is my money, and they can see that. I said, that's what we're, that's what we're up against. That's what we're trying to take the mask away and say, you care less about your money. God doesn't need your money. Uh, we take collections like we do for the Gideons, but that's not the norm. All right, so we find here, and first we find that he, his, uh, it's not to draw attention to himself. This is going to come into play later in the study. Um, in verse 15, all things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he, capital letters, will talk of me. The capital letter H-E infers and implies we're still talking deity here because it's the capital letter. Uh, another purpose of the Holy Spirit, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Dealing with the gifts of the Spirit. I'm just going to read the first 11 verses and let him speak for himself. Paul would have been in Corinth 12, 13, and 14 are um, the definitive chapters on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So Paul starts out by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. And here's the sad thing about it is, so many today are. You know that you were, when you were Gentiles, carried away with these dumb idols, uh, however you were led, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one Notice, for the profit of all. This is a major point in understanding receiving um, the Holy Spirit that the reason we desire it is so that others would profit from that gift. No one, for to one is given the word of wisdom uh, through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gift of healings by the same spirit, another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Now this is important, verse 11. But one and the same spirit worked all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills 
The Holy Spirit has a free will. He decides what person gets what gift as he wills. And I have that underlined capital he when it comes and it's in the masculine. If you look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, it goes on and talks about some more uh, gifts. Um, in 28, um, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, teachers, miracles and gifts of healings. Notice helps. You notice there's a gift that has a gift of helps. What's the gift of helps? Well, I was studying yesterday after men's prayer. I was walking downstairs to the restroom and I walked by Judy Glaze. She said, how you doing? I said, I'm teaching. How you doing? I'm cleaning. <laughs> and it hit, me, it hit me like, I just got done reading this scripture. And uh, what is the gift of helps? What, what Judy Glaze was doing, she was helping out. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be done in any given body. And what this part is all about is you can't say one is more important than the other. My teaching position is no greater or less than her helping position. And matter of fact, it says just the opposite is sometimes true. And um, so um, we read here, and this is important that you catch this, this last part. It says, do all have healings? Do all have speak with tongues? Do all do miracles? The answer to all those is no. We have different ones. But then it says, but earnestly desire the best gifts and I will show you a most excellent way. Question at this point. If there wasn't something more after conversion with the spirit of God already in you, why would Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12 to believers to earnestly covet and desire these things. What's the implication? There's more. But I'll show you even a more better way. And a more better way, of course, is 1 Corinthians 13. That you can have all all these gifts and it won't mean nothing unless it's operated with love. Apostle Paul said, it's the love of Christ that makes me do what I do. I'm not looking for attention. I'm not looking for money. I'm not looking for... Uh, prestige, or any of the above. I really, truly, as you do, want to see Jesus get all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. Good place for an amen. And you will remain usable, if that's your attitude. We're simply grateful. We're simply a beggar who's found bread, and hey, I can show you where to find some bread, because I was hungry too. So we go on. So he's a masculine Earnestly desire, he's talking to Christians, desire gifts. So his purpose, if I would summarize, I could talk about tongues here a little bit. I personally feel uh, the gift of tongues is uh, very personal and intimate. It bypasses the mental capacity and our spirit prays things that we don't even know. And the intimacy there is what I want to gravitate towards. Not a head knowledge of, but a heartfelt conviction of what the Holy Spirit is really all about. Now, he's got to convict you, first of all, so that you'd repent. But why did he do that? What was his purpose? What's God's plan? Well, the purpose is to draw out a people who will one day become the bride of Christ. 
And now we're getting back to the romance and the love. The Song of Solomon is a pretty sensual book. And uh, some try to downplay that. No, it's not to be downplayed at all. Romance and love um, is what I believe uh, why we are called the bride of Christ. And when it says we're to love him with all of our heart, mind, strength, and soul, when it gets to the purpose of the Holy Spirit, what's his real job? To draw out a bride for his son. Hold that in the back of your mind as we continue. How does one receive the Holy Spirit? Well, let's go back to our text. Story, I like the context that the Lord put it in. Being hungry. If a son asks bread from his father, will you give him a stone? Well, you got a kid who comes home from school? I'm hungry. So you give him something to, to eat. And then he says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who simply ask him? So that begs the question, how does one receive the Holy Spirit? Is it really as simple as just asking for it? And if you ask for it, will you get it? The answer to that question is no. Ooh, did I surprise everybody here? But let me prove it to you by turning to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We're going to kill two birds with one stone here. I'll tell you how one receives the Holy Spirit. And along with that, um, where we see examples of a separate event taking place from a person being baptized and saved, but still not baptized with the Holy Spirit. Let's pick it up in verse 5. Philip was a deacon, waited on tables in Acts 5. He went to Samaria, and the Lord really began to use him. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. There was great joy in the city. But there was a certain man named Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city, astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man, the sorcerer Simon, this man is a great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorcery for a long time. But when they believed Philip, okay, so let's get back to my question. Well, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. Wow. And when he was baptized, he continued with the, Philip. He was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they came down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. They're saved, they've been baptized, 
but they have not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen, and there's that, um, um, that word again, Greek word, and none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, remember the question from our text. If you're hungry and you ask, well, your father will give it to you. Because he's good and you're evil, but he'll give it to you. Not here. When Simon saw that through the laying out of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered him money. Saying, give me this power also that anyone who I lay my hands on will receive the Holy Spirit. You see, I, I like to call this, this guy here the big man on campus. And all of a sudden, he's not the big man on campus anymore. But he sees a way to get back to be the big man on campus. If he could pull off what Philip was doing, he'd be right back and he'd have the people's adoration all over again. Peter rebukes him. He says, your money perishes with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness because it's nothing more than pride and conceit for his need to be recognized. If perhaps the thoughts of your heart may be forgiven you. Well, this shakes him up. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound in iniquity. And then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Question. Is it as easy to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, how did you get saved? You were convicted. You had a free will. You exercised your free will and said, God's right, I'm a sinner. And through that conviction, you accepted Christ. And then you realize, I'm not adequate to live the Christian life. That's, that was my concern. And uh, that, that meant with witnessing the people. And that was something that terrified me, that whole thought. I can't do that. I knew it, I was just being honest with myself. And then I started to get discipled and say, Dwight, you have nothing to do with it. When you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Lord will empower you to speak his word. It won't be you at all. It'll be his spirit working through you. Well, that made sense to me. And April 9th, 1972, baptized in water and the Holy Spirit all at the same time. And I haven't shut up since then. <laughs> well, we find um, that uh, motive is what's really important here. Um, this actually became a word for false teachers, what Simon did here. The practice later became known as simony, the buying of position or power in the church. This sin became a curse to the church. Here, Simon was seeking to buy the Spirit's power, so Peter rebukes him. Is the baptism in the Holy Spirit the same as regeneration 
The Bible teaches that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is a separate and distinct from regeneration. And there's an example of it here in Acts that we just read. They believed, they were baptized, but the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon them. If they would have died during that time, would they have gone to heaven? Absolutely. So we, we have gone to read. I'll just give you another example. Um, the day Paul got saved. Uh, he ends up in Damascus. A certain disciple named Ananias had a vision in which the Lord told him to go find Saul. After a brief argument with the Lord about Saul, Ananias obeyed. He found Paul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road uh, has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 9 verse 17. Note that Paul's filling with the Holy Spirit was subsequent to his dis, uh, distinct from his conversion on the road to Emmaus. Let's turn to Acts chapter 10, just to show that you can't put the Lord in a box. This whole chapter is um, the first Gentile getting saved. Now this was unthinkable. So no Gentiles, only Jews in the church so far. So, Peter being Peter, um, got hungry and he's up on the porch waiting for lunch to be served. And he fell into a trance, a vision, and he sees this blanket coming down from heaven. And in it were all the unclean things listed in the Old Testament that were not kosher. So we would have had lamb chops on that, on that picnic basket coming down. And the Lord said to Peter, Peter, arise and kill and eat. And Peter says, not so, Lord. Is that not an oxymoron or what? (laughs) Not so, Lord. (laughs) And this thing happened three times. And finally, it's getting through Peter's thick head because there's a knock on the door. An angel had appeared to Cornelius and said, I want you to send for Peter. He's going to tell you how you can get saved. So Cornelius is calling all of his friends Verse 24, the following day they entered Caesarea and Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. We got a guy telling us how to get saved and he's excited about it. So I'm not gonna go through and read the whole chapter. It was in Joppa, beautiful, beautiful place on the Mediterranean. And he begins to share with them, first of all, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons and that um, um, he gets to the part where he begins to preach the gospel. Look at verse 42. He is, Peter saying to these people that are gathered, hanging on every word that Peter says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he who was ordained by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the people witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sin. Now if you're sitting in that Bible study, you're waiting for how to do it. What what do I have to do? And um, the angel could have done it, but the Bible says God has chosen the foolishness of preaching. Matter of fact, he's chosen the foolish things of the world to do his job rather than angels. 
And when they heard that Jesus' main thing was about the forgiveness of sins, that's it? Well, in their hearts, in their hearts, they said, that's what I'm gonna do. And while Peter was still speaking, in other words, he's still giving the Bible study, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. Hey, wait a second. They didn't say the sinner's prayer yet. Hey, wait a minute. They're not baptized, so what do we have here? We have a reverse order. What does that mean? It means God can do what he wants, what he wants, any way he wants. Good place for it, amen? Amen. And those of the circumcision, the Jews, who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, and Peter said, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized to receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Can't put the Lord in a box. This case, filled with the Holy Spirit first, then baptized. Acts chapter eight, Philip preaches, baptizes, but they have to wait for Peter and John to come up from Jerusalem before they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a reverse order. Now, the New Testament teaches two separate baptisms. Um, The Great Commission, Matthew 28, if you're taking notes, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. One water baptism and one baptism with fire and the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm often quoting that for every New Testament teaching we have an Old Testament picture. And I believe I found several of them because I've just given you the teaching on the subject from Luke chapter 11, 11 through 13. Um, Let's go back in your minds. I'm gonna have you turn back in just a bit, but when Israel came out of Egypt, they were there for 400 years. They were in bondage. And they cried out for help. And the Lord sent Moses to them. The 10th plague upon Egypt was the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians. In order for the angel of death to pass over a person's house so that he would not die, is you'd have to take the blood of a lamb, take some hyssop, and put it on the top of the door lentil and on the two side posts. That forms a cross, by the way. And the Lord says, when I see the blood, I'm gonna pass over that house and no one will die. That's where we get the word Passover from. By the way, Jesus died on Passover, okay? So what do we have here? Well, it's a picture. Were you not in bondage before you came out of the world? Egypt is always symbolic of the world. And when the blood was applied to your life, were you not set free from your bondage? What was the first thing you did after, what did Peter say to do? Believe and 
be baptized. We read, if you're taking notes, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, it says, all were baptized, this is the New Testament now, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It's a picture of the first thing you do when you're saved from the world. Coming out of Egypt is a picture of the world. The waters parting, them walking through on dry land, the Egyptians following them, a picture of the world, the waters come crashing down, and there's a death. Well, who died? The Egyptians. It's a picture where we're told that when you're baptized, you're burying the old man. So we have here, I believe, a picture of the Christian walk. Coming out of the world, how? By the blood of the lamb being applied to my life. Then what? Well, then I get baptized. What happens? It's a picture outwardly showing that something died in the water. And that happened one time. And then for the next 40 years, they're wandering, waiting to enter into the land that God promised them. Now, yesterday in men's prayer, we happened to be in Joshua. And um, um, being in Joshua, we were talking about the divisions of the land and so on and so forth. I mentioned that we're going to be in Joshua this morning because what I just gave you um, a picture of, an Old Testament picture of water baptism. Now I want to fast forward 40 years to Joshua chapter 3, which I'm going to have you turn to. Joshua chapter 3. And look at verses 14 through 16. They're on the shores of the Jordan. What I want to emphasize here, there's a reason they call it the promised land. And now I want to connect some dots with the New Testament because I believe here we have a picture of being baptized by the promise that God made to Israel. I'm going to take you into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. If you're taking notes, jot down Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you have seen and hear. So, in the New Testament, what was the promise for the church? Well, the promise was the Holy Spirit. Now, twice... Um, in this journey, the first time 40 years earlier, Charlton Hess, I mean Moses, <laughs> parted the Red Sea. Well, here it is 40 years later. Back then, it was, God just did it. If you're in Joshua chapter three, looking at verse 14, what lies on the other side of the Jordan is everything that God promised to them, the promised land. But what we have happening is the waters parting a second time. They had parted earlier at the Red Sea. This is the Jordan River. Now, in verse 14, on the day the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all of Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priest to bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priest, saying, Come up from the Jordan. 
And it came to pass when the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of their feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to the place and flowed. Before that, um, when they stepped out, let's see. Let's go back to chapter three. I, met, I got ahead of myself here. Verse 14. Uh, this is when the waters part. And it came to pass as soon as the sole of the feet of the priest who bore the ark of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan will be cut off and the waters that come down from upstream and they shall stand as a heap. What are you saying, Dwight? Two times. We have, I believe, two baptisms. The first one was a water being delivered from the world, but now we have the waters being parted again. But this time, you actually had to do something. I call it taking a step of faith. It says as soon as the priest touched the water, they had to believe that something was going to happen. And as soon as it did, what happened? The water stopped, just like they had 40 years earlier. And they walked over. And when they got to the other side, they got some rocks and built a memorial so they'd never forget. And then the waters came back over and they entered into what God had promised to them. I'm here this morning to uh, put this not in an intellectual sense that we've learned things intellectually, but more importantly, what the real work of the Holy Spirit is really all about. And that is um, this promise, but the purpose for the promise of the Holy Spirit, when all is said and done, First thing is to convict you of sin, and the next thing is to be involved with this wedding that's someday gonna take place. Do you believe that you're the bride of Christ? Yeah. Do you believe that there's gonna be a wedding banquet someday? Doesn't that sound romantic to you? <laughs> Does to me. And I believe romanticism and intimacy um, isn't really thought about much when it comes to this particular subject. But I want you to know, I believe the Holy Spirit gave a whole chapter on our whole Bible study this morning, and I'll close with it. And that is by turning to the book of Genesis, chapter 24. I gotta admit, first time I did this study, it blew my mind. We have in Genesis 24, the story of Abraham, his oldest servant, and Isaac, not married, and dad doesn't want him to take a wife from the Canaanites. Let's read the first couple verses. Genesis 24, now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And he said to his oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, and you will not take a wife from the sons of the daughters of the Canaanites from whom I dwell. But I want you to go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. And so we're introduced to um, this guy here who is simply called the oldest servant. He has a name. 
But for some reason, the Holy Spirit decides not to use his name. And I believe the reason for that is to draw attention to this person. If you go back to Genesis 15, you will find out who his name is. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Don't be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. And Abraham said, Ah, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I'm childless and and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. This is his servant, but not his son. You know what the word Eliezer means? Yeah, it means you can take the King James comforter or the better translation here is helper. The word Eliezer means comforter or helper. Well, now we have a picture. Let's go back to Genesis 24. Now we know who the guy is. We have an unnamed servant. What did we learn about the New Testament that the Holy Spirit will not speak of himself? I just find it interesting that he goes unnamed here. But we know his name. And without reading the whole story, I will, well, there's conditions that he's got to go to the land, back to his brother's house to pick out a wife from from Mesopotamia. And um, Eliezer, a picture of the Holy Spirit here, says, well, what if we go and she doesn't want to come? What if we go and mom and dad say no? He says, then I will release you from the the vow that you're making. If she says no, then she's got a free will. If her parents say no, then, then we'll let it go. And well, what about taking your son there? And in verse six, beware that you do not take my son back there. And gang, there's a Bible study in that one. The Bible says that when Jesus ascended on high, he sat at the right hand of the Father. He's coming back, but he's not coming back to this world until it's judged. Don't send my son back there now, not what they did, the separation that I went through for my son. Don't send him back. And so we find a servant being sent to draw out a bride and not the son himself. So he travels, and as he's traveling, he's thinking he's on his way to Mesopotamia. He has 10 camels with him, a lot of gold, a lot of silver, a lot of presents. And he's thinking to himself, how how is this going to work? How am I going to know which one the Lord wants? Now this is where I'm given a green light for those of you who know about putting fleeces before the Lord. Does everybody understand what I just said? In other words, Lord, I think I should do this, but I'm not sure, but if you do this, then I'll know it's okay. Anybody ever do that besides me? Um, We're told we, we can plan, we can plan such and such a thing. Next year from now, we're going to Israel. But I gotta tag that with, if the Lord wills. Amen? So we're putting it out there And that's what Eliezer is doing here. He says, now Lord, when I get to this place, um, have it be when the girls come out to water the camels that the one that I asked for a drink of water for myself and the camels, that she says, yeah, I'll give you a drink of water. Oh, and by the way, I'll water your camels while I'm at that too. So we come out and he runs into Rebecca, 
verse 16. And um, uh, he describes her now in verse 16. The young woman was very beautiful to behold a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well to fill her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please, let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, drink, my lord. And she hastened to let her pitcher down to the hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, hey, how about if I draw water for your camels too? And I could just see Eliezer going, yes! <laughs> That's the one. So what he does is he, he takes a, um, a nose ring. I didn't know. I thought there was a, that was a modern day thing, evidently not. And he sticks it in her nose here. So she's got a big gold ring in her nose. And then he puts on two, uh, ten shekels of gold on both of her wrists, and she goes home. And um, she said, we got a guy that has come all this way, and, um, and I invited him home. We told him we have enough room for his camels, and so on and so forth. And um, she, uh, Rebecca's brother's name is Laban. And if you know anything about Laban being a shyster, he was a shyster. But he's also shrewd. And he, when he looked at that golden ring in her nose and those two golden bracelets on her arms, he says, good to see you. Now come on in. We got a place prepared for you. So he's going over to the top. And um, they basically stopped the conversation. He says, um, I'm a servant of Abraham your brother. He won't allow a wife to be taken from the land that he's in, only from here. I'm on this journey and um, I put this fleece before the Lord and he's recounting everything that we just read. And um, I'm here to ask permission to take Rebecca back with me. This was the fleece I put before the Lord. It happened just as I asked. And then um, when he tells his story, he says, well, what do you think? And their answer, verse 50, then Laban and Bethel answered, this thing comes from the Lord. We can't speak to you either good or bad. Here's Rebecca before you. Take her and let, let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. And so it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard these words, he worshiped. And then the servants brought out more jewelry and gold and clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to Laban. That's what Laban was hoping for. To her mother. And all the men who were with them ate and drank and stayed up all night. Then they arose in the morning and said, send me away to my master. Now mom and dad had a chance to think about it overnight. Our daughter's leaving. We're never going to see her again. So... They're kind of backing off. They're not saying no, but they're trying to buy time. But her brother and her mother said, let the woman stay with us a few more days, say 10, that she may go. And he said to them, do not hinder me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, well, we'll call the young woman and we'll ask her personally. Gang, what I'm about to say is very important because nobody forces you to become the bride of Christ. Mom and dad can't do it, even though some have tried. This has gotta be your own 
free will. And um, then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And you've heard people say, will you give your life to Jesus Christ? It's the picture. And she said, I will go. What do we have here? We have a picture of a father who's sending an unnamed servant into a land to bring back a bride for his son, Isaac. That's the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit in the end run when it's all said and done is to bring a bride of your own free will. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of tens of thousands. I don't think she wanted quite that many. And may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebecca and her maid arose and they rode on the camel and followed the man. So the servant to Rebecca and they departed. Now this was a journey. And we're in the middle of that journey right now. Aren't there days that you think, I wonder what it's going to be like. I wonder what the Lord looks like. Don't you think Rebecca was thinking those things? I've never seen him face to face. I know his voice. I know he's rich. <laughs> no, but I don't, I've never met him. And so on the journey, it's the same with us. Now, Isaac came from the way of Ber Lahorai, and he dwelt in the south, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. Now, when we go to be with the Lord, he comes, but he doesn't come to earth. We go to him. And so the picture remains the same. And he lifted his eyes and he looked, and there was the camels were coming, and Rebecca lifted her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. And she said to the servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the master said, it's my master. servant said, it's my master. So she took a veil, covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The real purpose of the Holy Spirit is to gather a bride for his son. It's a picture. I'm gonna leave you with a question this morning in case you've never yielded to the wooing and the convicting of the Holy Spirit. It is verse 58 of this chapter. Simple question. It was given to Rebecca, her own free will. Will you go with this man? Will you give your life to Jesus knowing that he paid the ultimate price? and that he did it with the intent of someday making you and him one. And that's probably the greatest question you'll ever answer. If you've never said yes to the Holy Spirit when he's been drawing you to him, he's there to draw you out, to work through your life, but it all comes up to the place where there's the wedding banquet of Christ, which is uh, going to take place And we have the most prominent position 
in all of heaven for all eternity in that we are the bride of Christ. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we look at a unique description of the work of these two baptisms, the necessity of being baptized by your Holy Spirit, Lord, help us not be afraid of it, realizing that your end game plan is to have us married to your son. So thank you for your word this morning. Bless your people on this holiday weekend. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's probably the greatest question you'll ever answer. If you've never said yes to the Holy Spirit when he's been drawing you to him, he's there to draw you out, to work through your life. But it all comes up to the place where there's the wedding banquet of Christ, which is uh, going to take place. And we have the most prominent position in all of heaven for all eternity in that we are the bride of Christ. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we look at a unique description of the work of these two baptisms, the necessity of being baptized by your Holy Spirit, Lord, help us not be afraid of it, realizing that your end game plan is to have us married to your son. So thank you for your word this morning. Bless your people on this holiday weekend. In Jesus' name, amen.